Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall, either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to... Oh, I was about to say stage and screen then. I mean bums on seats. Stage and screen's the other one we do on Cambridge 105 Radio. Sorry, I've, I've ruined it at the beginning. This is the good one. We'll be talking depth about all the films that are out at the moment. We've got a really packed show today. We've got Le Mans or Ford versus Ferrari if you're in America, Aeronauts, and then we have a really good interview about the Russian Film Festival that's on in Cambridge, and then we have Last Christmas, which I hope they didn't ruin that brilliant Wham song with. Then we've got Burning Kane, and if we have time for it, we're going to squeeze in The Good Liar as well. I've got Dave here, I've got Emma here, I've got Simon here, and I have Mark here, the movie evangelist, but let's get cracking, because like I said, we have tons of stuff to talk about. Oh, Oh, by the way, I'm Ashley. I forgot to tell you that. <laughs> you know me anyway. Um, let's get on to the racetrack with Le Mans 66. You're going to build a car to beat Ferrari with a Ford. Correct. And how long did you tell them that you needed? Two, three hundred years? 90 days. <laughs> This isn't the first time Ford Motors has gone to war. We know how to do more than push paper. Go ahead, Carol. Go to war. Thank you, sir. Do you think you can beat Ferrari? I can try. We're lighter, we're faster. And that don't work, we're nastier. So, we'll go to Simon first. I know the very, very basics of this, but I don't really do. Is it even Formula One? <laughs> it's not Formula One, it's GT Racing. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, What's this about then? It's called Ford versus Ferrari in America, but for people who don't know what Le Mans is. Le Mans is. 66. Um, well, Le Mans 66 is the race in 1966, um, based on the Le Mans 24-hour uh, endurance race, which had been dominated by Ferrari for you many, many years. You said the car for 24 years. hours? Um, they <laughs> alternate two drivers per oh. car, um, but it means you need to be fast and have a reliable car. Mm-hmm. Um, Ford so sounds reliable, don't they? Ford are like very reliable, <laughs> but never fast and never flash, which uh-huh. is why after Ferrari dominating and Ford losing sales, they decide that they're going to win the um, classic competition. Um, which is when they hired Carol Shelby um, to design the 4GT. Um, So Shelby is And this film is about the creation of the car and the programme. Matt Damon as Carol Shelby and Christian Bale as Ken Miles, the supposedly brummy um, (laughs) test driver, um, who's a bit... Testy test driver. Test driver, driver, very testy, (laughs) bit on the wild side. Um... As they create the car and go up against Ferrari to try and win the race. Um, I've been looking forward to this film since I first heard about it. I quite enjoy Formula One, um, so know all about Ferrari, but not a big Ferrari fan. Um, So, although I didn't know the full story, 
I really enjoyed this film. Okay. Um, it was everything I'd hoped it would be. Surprisingly funny. I was really surprised at how light and it was. Um, occasionally the direction storyline's a bit too on the nose a few times, but I'm guessing that helps bring the film to the wider audience. You don't need to be a petrol head to follow it or understand it. Um, the racing I thought was exciting. It really got into the cars um, without overcomplicating things. And although it took some liberties with the story, I thought it was really interesting and um, Christian Bale was absolutely fantastic as Ken Miles. It's one of the funniest characters I've seen for a while. <laughs> Emma's face. She's got a weird face on. Have you got a lime I've in your mouth? I've got a disagreeing face. I've got on. Not a petrol head. No, I was also really looking forward to this because I like James Mangold. I really enjoyed Walk the Line. I really enjoyed Logan. So I was excited to see what he was going to do with this story. I'm a huge Christian Bale fan, usually. And I am a huge Matt Damon fan. I will say I really enjoyed Matt Damon. It's hard to ever not enjoy Matt Damon, I find, mm. on screen. He always turns in a solid performance. But that's all this film was for me. I felt it was really workmanlike. It was solid. It was a decent biopic, but it didn't do anything else with what I thought could have been a more dramatically paced story. And Christian Bale, I'm sorry, the, I mean, the accent is... Like I said, it's meant to be Birmingham. It's a little bit all over the place at the beginning. But I've I just seen found the trailer. Him I didn't even know he was supposed to be. I didn't like, get Birmingham at all. It was no. Well, at the beginning we <laughs> were Yorkshire like, thrown in there. I thought maybe it was Cockney at the tour. beginning. Then Yorkshire, then Birmingham. Yeah. Touring cars and touring accents. I also felt that some of the language that was used in it did not sound like it was a language that we would be used in 1966. I particularly found that with. Um, Ken Miles' wife, which is a really fine performance by Chris, uh, Katerina Balfe, best known for Outline, yeah. Outlander. So it was, it was fine for me, but I didn't find the racing exciting. I thought at two and a half hours, it dragged. Oh, must we keep doing this? No one listens to me. These two-hour-plus films. But Mark, you love. It. Um, I, I loved is, is maybe a strong word, but really strongly liked, I think I would go as far as. Um, and I think for me, it was that family relationship with uh, everyone managing to do the same slightly strange accent together. Uh, you had Christian Bell, Katrina Balfe, and, and the fantastic Noah Jupe. Uh, maybe they was... all went to different schools or something. Well, they, they clearly all went to the same school, which no one else in Birmingham went to. But, I mean, given, given that, that you've got one Welshman, an Irish woman, and a, an American boy, the, the fact they've all managed to do the same accent is at least an achievement. Hmm. Uh, but, but actually, it's their family relationship which is the core of the film and actually what kept me interested uh, all the stuff with the uh, the suits in, in Ferrari is a little bit uh, sorry, uh, with Ford and Ferrari, particularly with Ford, you see Josh Lucas as one of the higher-ups uh, that's that's really trying to control what's going on in the situation. That all just felt a little bit staid and predictable. Um, it, I was just waiting then for it to then cut back to the, the family relationship again, all the scenes between Matt Damon and, and Christian Bale, which worked. I have to say, going in, I was thinking this is going to be a motor racing movie and I really want to feel that, that energy of travelling in a car at 200 miles an hour. And actually, by the end of two and a half hours, I felt I hadn't seen it, but I didn't miss it. Uh, it actually gave me different things, and I appreciated the things it gave me. Nice. Well, Dave, it's got, well, I say a pretty good writer. It depends if you liked Spectre and Black Mass and Edge of Tomorrow and whatnot, but did you find any problems, or did you notice that the writing was a bit out of place? Or No, I, I was okay with the whole thing. I, I think what I was enjoying most when I saw the film was I can see kind of why they've done the name change so it's Ford for the Ferrari in North America and some of the places and it's Le Mans 66 over mm. here in Europe because although it is ultimately about the race and going to compete I also found that it was also about the kind of what Mark noticed the the inner 
struggle that the uh, that Shelby and Miles had to get for to let them realise their vision. Because uh, what you, you, you don't get from the trailer is it actually starts two years before the race because Ford tried to enter in 65 and it does not go well for them. Oh, yeah, because the trailer says you've only got 90 days to yeah, get this done or and, something, yeah. And that's the first attempt. And one of the things that happens is the higher-ups start interfering and they, they don't let Ken Miles race. And, you know, he gets... Because they don't want to be embarrassed, I think. Uh, something to do with their image, yeah, because mm. he's, he's not he's the... He's a rebel. He's not the face of Ford, no, I think, is the phrase they use. <laughs> and and all, of, all of that stuff, all the kind of executive board meetings and things, I thought they were really... Then this was the bit where the ex- unexpected human was coming in because yeah. you've also got oh I'm going to space on his name um, Tracy Letts as the uh, Tracy Letts as the head of Ford and Benfold. John Burnfield John Burnfield I was going to give a shout out to him he was great as, as John Burnfield so good yeah. who is now famous for heading up the executive branches of several big companies and the, the two of them turn in I think two of the best performances in the film you know yeah. all I respect agree. to Matt Damon and Christian Bell but. I couldn't help but watch those two on the screen. The bit where Ford finally kind of caves and gives over control is is in an office, but then they kind of start interfering again, and they come back, and Matt Damon takes him for a test drive in the car. And his reaction to that is absolutely priceless. It's probably one of my favourite scenes. I mean, I have seen some very interesting readings of this film where it's actually really about Hollywood and about James Mangold struggling, trying trying to create Wolverine and some of his earlier films which weren't as successful, and about the corporate meddling in when, you know, really the corporation should be staying out of um, either the mechanics or filmmaking. So that's why people think it's such a personal project for him. Well, maybe he should have made it a bit less personal, a bit more exciting. (laughs) (laughs) What was the... um, Which family story is it, by the way, that it hinges on? Is it Christian Bale's character or Matt Damon's? Uh, Christian Christian Bale's Ken Miles. He's he's got the son in the trailer, doesn't he? Yeah. So is that... Does anyone know the real story of these people very well? Do Um, you know how close to life it is? I know a bit. There are some changes from the film um, that... You can see why they make the changes for cinematic effect and, you know, for dramatic effect. Um, Carol Shelby, his story, he doesn't have much of a background in here, but, I mean, he went on to become a really successful designer, car designer. Um, I don't want to give away too many spoilers (laughs) on here because there are a lot of story things to do with the family and what actually happened, which... I don't necessarily want to spoil because I enjoyed going in not knowing the full story about what happens. So you oh, can yes, look back and say you can wins. go back in the history and say, "Oh, this is what actually happened." But I found it more enjoyable not knowing and just okay. generally knowing that yeah, Ford Ferrari, you can guess who's going to win. But how it all uh, the fallout of everything is, you know, interesting. Well, shall we not spoil it then? But it's kind of the, those of you who liked it said it was nice and okay. Okay, I'm getting. Or was it? Do you want to? Solid. Go I think back? I would say solid. solid. I mean, and I'm probably the least. It was. I'm out of all of us. I'm probably the one who liked it the least. And I would still say it's a very solid and capable biopic, and not yeah. a bad way to spend your time in the cinema. I mean, the main thing. I, the main thing I would say was how enjoyable it was. And I think that even if you're not a big car fan, there is plenty of here to actually enjoy with the you know the comedies, the story. It's interesting. You don't have to be a petrol head to go and enjoy it. Yeah, it, it, it struck me at odd moments of something like Star Trek, uh, which I will explain, <laughs> in that in the, 
the best episodes of Star Trek, they'll have all this weird techno babble about the spaceships in the background, but it doesn't really impact the story. It just gives you an idea these people know more than you do about their subject. Yeah. And you get the same in this. You get <laughs> lots of technical speak about pistons and wizards and goodness knows what else. I don't know anything about cars. I get in it, I wizards. drive it. And I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they are car wizards. They absolutely are geniuses at putting these things together, but it doesn't require you to have that same level of expertise to be able to enjoy the film. And I think that's a, that's a mark of some good writing. I, it's always the case when you come to a film that's this length and you sit and you think it's two and a half hours, the average film is about an hour and 45, and, and how much could we have got that closer to that mark? And I think... What's it filled with then? What's there too much of? A, a story, basically, because it is, it, is telling, it is telling a long story. There, there are, there are, I don't think there's a massive amount of scenes or anything that you could cut. Um, if, you were, if you were trying to trim down scenes to increase the pacing, I think it would tell the wrong story because this is it's about endurance racing. These people race for 24 hours. If they, we're talking about Formula One with the two-hour races, things like um, uh, Rush. Rush, which yeah. ha- I think had more energy in the racing scenes because it's a more it's energetic yeah. version of the sport. You know, th- this is about the endurance racing and consequently it's about the endurance of the characters to get to that goal. I like that, and the endurance of the audience to make it through. <laughs> Absolutely. <'cause> you- <laughs> this reminds me of The Square, and that's the last time my partner ever came to the cinema with me because he does not trust me ever anymore. <laughs> Dave. I was going to say one other thing about the sound design on the film, mm-hmm. which I actually thought was brilliant. From the very first second you hear one of the engines roar to life, if you've got a very nice sound system with you, it's just going to shake you in your seat. And that was one of the things that actually did immerse me. I agree with Mark. If you look at Rush, the racing sequences in Rush are absolutely superb. They're frenetic, they're jam-packed with... This is more about focus and control, so you don't get that kind of same rushed energy. But when you've got the sound of the car coming in from all sides as they're going head-to-head down a straight, and it's all about just who's going to break first... Oh, it's absolutely marvellous. So that'll get an Oscar nomination or something. It should probably get something for sound design. I don't think it'll get a soundtrack nomination because, sorry, Marco Beltrami, you are not Hans Zimmer. (gasps) Said Dave, the sound guy. Well, that's Le Mans. Or if you're looking for it on IMDb or anywhere to read up about it online, you'll probably need to search Ford versus Ferrari. But it's in all the local cinemas and all your surrounding cineworlds. It's out now. Bums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. And we're going to leave the racetrack and go up, up and away with aeronauts now. Are you the widow Wren? Amelia Wren. And who might you be? James Glacier. I'm a meteorologist. I believe the weather can be predicted. I need you and your balloon to help me. Women don't belong in balloons on show. This is absurd. Your reputation is built on paper. My reputation is built on screens. I hated you going up in that balloon. I do not wish to lose you to any more foolishness. It's where I have found the greatest happiness. The possibility of weather prediction could save lives. We are scientists, not fortune tellers. You are the only person who could fly us higher than anyone has ever been. Five, four, three. And so it begins. So we have Tom Harper writing and directing the Aeronauts. We've got what's the name? Felicity and Felicity Jones and Eddie Redmayne. What's it about if that trailer didn't really that's a really not helpful trailer. 
Um, I'm not sure my description will be much more helpful, but let's give it a go, shall we? Uh, this is focusing on very much the two lead characters. Uh, we have uh, Amelia Wren, played by Felicity Jones, uh, and she is a balloon pilot. Uh, she used to fly balloons with her husband, uh, and she now flies solo for reasons that become portrayed during the film. And uh, she has uh, been taken on as a pilot by uh, scientist James Glacier, played by Eddie Redmayne. Uh, so we have a... Uh, uh, a theory of everything reunion here uh, with the two leads uh, and he's a scientist who has some theories about weather and uh, he's calling himself a meteorologist uh, this brand new term that, that everyone's mocking slightly and so he wants to get in the balloon try and go up as high as anyone's ever been before and try and find out things which will allow him to predict the weather but he needs her services to do it okay it's it it sounds like it has potential that story but it's the trailer feels slow and dull to me simon is it or is it not <laughs> well i first heard about this film when i actually saw a trailer for it in the imax cinema so when they announced it as one of the films shown at the light during the recent cambridge film festival yes, at the it imax was, yeah. it was the number one film on my list to go see um and having seen it in the imax it is stunning um oh, okay. You can say the story may not sound as interesting and there's not a lot happening. There are lots of scenes where there's not much dialogue or story, but it is shot absolutely beautifully. Um, the bigger the screen you can see it on, the better. So okay. try and get down in cinema as soon as you can to go see this. It's a good old-fashioned adventure film. Um, one thing I liked about it, it has only, only got a PG certificate. There's quite a bit of peril. Um, lots oh, of vertigo, stomach's <laughs> flipping, my stomach was flipping, it was really oh, on the no, edge of the seat, terrifying, you know, for a PG film, but it's a good old adventure film. Um, I'm confused why it's... Well, you know, to a hander, in a hot air balloon, but That's, the adventures they get up to, to just going up and then have to get into more and more danger and what's happening. Um, I said at edge of my seat, so... There were a few drawbacks. Some of the dramatic scenes on the ground behind them, trying to, with the flashbacks, to try and explain mm. the characters a bit more. Um, it was quite nice seeing Hemish Patel again. Um, and they were okay. They were, you know, they what you describe as what you expected to be a little bit dull, a little bit boring, maybe, and going <laughs> in. And a little bit A to B, you know what's right. going to go on pretty much. You've seen this film a hundred times before. It um, reminds me a bit of it gravity. Like gravity. Yeah. It's I one of those things where, again, <laughs> I mean, gravity was actually the film I was thinking about comparing it to. You may not think it's much, but if you can see it on a big screen, just having that little character as a small dot in the middle, the effect it has on you is okay. just. You know, absorbing. You don't get it on a small screen. You really need to see it on as big a screen as you can to appreciate how wonderful and how beautiful this film is. I might give it a go because the the director did um, what's her name? Sorry, Tom Harper did Wild Rose, which I loved. Mm -hmm. But and also War. I was just seeing as well. He did War and Peace, that yeah. BBC adaptation, mm -hmm. which was brilliant. And some Peaky Blinders. So do we think it's just Tom Harper's direction that's brought this, perhaps? subject to life. I, I think to life is a, a, a slightly <laughs> strong word. I, I'm going to give a slightly dissenting voice to, to Simon. I, I think there are things to like about the film uh, and um, there's, there's two scenes in particular I'd pick out that actually 
made the film worth watching for me. Uh, one is actually set in the balloon where Felicity Jones discovers that the, the valve which releases the, the gas from the balloon to allow them to descend has become frozen because they've gone so high. Uh, and you see... That the, peril! There's the lots, peril. lots of amazing things happen that you wouldn't expect while they're, they're up 30,000 feet in the air where no one's ever gone before. Um, the only way to release this is for her to climb on top of the balloon to try and release it. Uh, and that is the moment when the person like me with their fear of heights oh my. felt my stomach slightly lurching. I did see this in IMAX as well, so you get the full effect of... My feet have yeah. gone cold thinking about it. Uh, about to, to hurtle <laughs> to earth. The other scene that, that struck me was there's a scene uh, in one of the flashbacks where they're actually in a ballroom and uh, this is where uh, Eddie Redmayne has gone to try and first secure the services of Felicity Jones and so he's pretending to be at this this party with someone else but he's actually just snuck in himself uh, and they end up having a dance and there's a lot of this... Uh, back and forth banter going between the two of them while they're trying to establish a position of dominance and it's a really great scene and it's the only scene like it in the whole film I really wish there had been more scenes that strong in character uh, with that much energy on the ground in the rest of the film and unfortunately there aren't that many scenes with that much energy in the balloon either it's only when they climb outside the balloon that you really start to feel any kind of palpable sense of excitement it's one of the politest films I've ever seen and that's not a compliment. It's just so nice and so safe. And for a film that's about danger, it just feels it needed to be a little bit more dangerous in places. I got from the trailer then, and I take it the answer's no from what you've just said, Mark, but was there much to do about feminism and the fact that Felicity Jones is doing this very dangerous job in the 1800s and how dare she? It's unfortunate that her character is actually a composite of other people. Oh, um, they say it's real. historical and her character is the one that is not real. But it's a shame because I really didn't quite enjoy it. There are quite a few comments about, you know, as a female pilot, she's as good as anyone else. Um, so they've called her Amelia probably after a, Earhart. Then Amelia Earhart, Ren yeah. as a bird. I would have thought Glacier was the made-up name as well because, you know, <laughs> especially when he's doing, like, the cold and all of that. But no, that is actually the scientist's name. I would have to say that, that on that feminism subject there are scenes for example where, where Felicity Jones goes to the uh, the society of all the geography people where, where they're all based and you get the likes of Tim McInerney as a, a rather gruff scientist I, I love any amount of Tim McInerney frankly uh, good old um, uh, Lord Percy or Captain Darling from Blackadder as he's probably best known uh, uh, he's, he's always just, just brilliant to giving this stern gruff view uh, and so uh, she walks in there just like she owns the place and they're oh you can't have women in here and it's it's that kind of level of, of feminism discourse uh, it's it's not anything I think deep and insightful I think another of the frustrations with the film and maybe not the film's fault because it's trying to tell a story about two people there are so many good people in the cast I wish I'd seen more of uh, Rebecca Front uh, Robert Glenister um, even uh, I think Anne Reed and Tom Courtney as as uh, James's parents um, they, they get a certain amount of screen time but uh, I think there's only probably one scene with Tom Courtney as as the father which actually really resonates and there's this wonderful supporting cast we've mentioned Himesh Patel already as well uh, he gets a reasonable amount of screen time but doesn't get much chance to do anything with it the film really is about Felicity Jones and, and Eddie Redmayne um, and as and someone not who's, enough of them together you don't think as someone who's not a massive Eddie Redmayne fan oh, uh, yeah. doing, the, doing the little Danish girl pose with my hands <laughs> under my chin uh, I have to describe it because you can't see it on radio uh, that um, yeah uh, he always he needs to convince me slightly more I think when I come into a film and I don't feel he did that 
here quite as much. I'd seen him before. You know, he's doing the old scientist who's more concerned about his science. There's nothing in his role uh, that's original. I'm not a big fan of Eddie Redmayne. Um, I thought Felicity Jones did a lot more, but it's definitely... But it didn't harm my enjoyment of the film at all. Um, It's definitely a look thing. It's an experience. Um, And maybe they've lost a bit because they want to be the family friendly. I mean, another good thing which you will like about it is only an hour 40. That'll do for me. (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather go see that. Well, that's the Aeronauts. You you might have caught it at the Cambridge Film Festival if you did not. It's on at all three cinemas in town and all of your surrounding cineworlds and family-friendly, as Simon has said to you. We've still got three films to try and squeeze in on Bums on Seats. We've got Last Christmas, Burning Kane and The Good Liar. But first, we're going to go to our special interview about the Russian Film Festival. So it's the end of November, so the Russian Film Week has returned to Cambridge. This is a rare chance to see new Russian cinema, so not so much the art house things that will find their way to the Arts Picture House at some point, but the more popular films with actual Russian audiences. This is the fourth year. The festival's been put together by the Cambridge Russian Speaking Society. Society, which celebrate their 20th anniversary this year and it's created to bring together a community of the expat Russians in Cambridge as well as those who want to know more about the culture and the language. It's held across four days at the end of this month. Um, this year the festival is screening three new f- Russian feature films. They are A Russian Youth, The Balkan Line and The Conquest of Siberia. Plus there's an evening of eight new short movies from new filmmakers. So producer Toby Miller spoke to Yelena Karl, a trustee of the society and one of the organisers of the festival and Yelena went through the film screening as well as where you can see them across Cambridge but first she details the dates the films were screening. Russian Film Week in Cambridge uh, will take place on the last week in November We start on the 25th of November, Monday, and then we go, uh, the second screening is on Wednesday, 27th, then Friday, 29th, and we'll finish on Saturday, the 30th. All films start at 7 o'clock, they're just at different venues, but they all start at the same time. The very first film you have screening is A a Russian Youth, which is the debut feature from Alexander Zolotukhin. Zolotukhin. It's a war movie, specifically the First World War, does it, it it does sound a, a little different from the usual sort of bombastic blockbusters that you've shown in the past. Is that the case? Correct. Um, I would say this is a proper festival film, an art house uh, film. It is about the war, but it's more than just the war film. This film tells uh, the story of a simple village boy who goes to the front uh, of the World War One, um, and he's very naive. Um, he has he's dreaming of fame and medals but in the very first battle he loses his eyesight Uh, so he is left to work as a listener Uh, he cannot see but he can listen and he needs to listen for uh, the approaches of the enemy airplanes which would be dropping bombs the many non-professional actors worked on this film Uh, that's different from sort of mainstream cinema um, also, a big um, a big part of this movie is music of Sergei Rachmaninov, who created the third piano concerto in 1909. It is anti-war film. Yes, which, which we haven't anti-war. had before to such yeah. a degree. Yes. I think in general the war films are very popular in Russia, and it's not necessarily glorifying the war. It's more about, in uh, general, the tragedy of any military conflicts, uh, the tragedy of uh, losing... Uh, 
people uh, and misunderstanding turning into a huge disaster. It's this director's debut feature and he does seem to be... And this is actually the first time, I think, in the four years we've been covering the film festival, the Russian film festival. This is the first time I can recall a director whose work you're showing who who seems to come from left field. Correct. Um, and then I have to add that the director is a student of uh, Alexander Sakurov. So the end of the Russian art. Yeah. art so everybody scene. will know his name, well, Sakurov. So I think it also gives a credit to the director and it would be interesting to see what the students of Sakurov are doing. Well, then on the second day of your film festival, you have the Balkan Line. As the title suggests, it's set, I would imagine, during the 1990s Kosovo War. Yes, it's uh, set in Yugoslavia. Um, and it's a more modern and more recent military conflict. Again, it's a war movie where you can you can call it an anti-war propaganda just again because it's showing all the horror of, of war. But this is a more mainstream, I would say, and more, um, it wouldn't call it Ameri- like American blockbuster, but it's more of a film that everybody will try to go and see. Again, it's very controversial. It's sort of manufacturing a battle where there wasn't a battle, and it's taking a slightly anti-NATO line in its narrative. It sort of blames NATO for historical facts that it's made up for the purpose of drama. So we cannot call it a documentary, that's for sure. But it's not up front about what it's doing. (laughs) It's not. Uh, And because it's a joint production, Serbia and Russia, um, you can imagine that that would be the point of view of the Serbian and Russians rather than Americans um, and NATO. It definitely plays on feelings of national identity and patriotism. That's always slightly dangerous and anybody does it It around war. (laughs) It is. Um, It is, but... I think it's still interesting. Lots of people like this action-packed films. Uh, it's it's very much a gung-ho. Yes. I mean, there's a serious thread running through, but it's very much a sort of almost an Expendables type of style of, of action within this political framework. So the Balkan line is on Wednesday the 27th of November at 7 o'clock and then two days later on the Friday at 7 o'clock you have The Conquest of Siberia which in comparison to the other movies this seems less of a war movie despite the title and more of a grand sweeping epic. Is that the case? Because you've shown grand sweeping epics before and they always go down well. Yes, we thought that uh, historic drama uh, goes really well with British audience. (laughs) Yes, it does. It's like that. It's one of the interesting parts in our history. Peter the Great is, again, the person who I would think every Russian or every Russian speaker knows. Um, And it's interesting to look at that period of time and the um, sort of um, imperial uh, expansion. But it seems to be, reading the plot, a small story that's encased within a larger story. Again, is is that the case? Correct. Uh, uh, It's always good to see the story and adventure of uh, one particular person, sometimes it's called a small person, an ordinary uh, guy like in a, in a Russian youth, for example, uh, within um, a big scale of uh, grand events, so the, the, the history of the country as it happens. So that's the case here as well. And then the following day, on the Saturday, you have the short films, where the festival has, on the previous three screenings, sort of shown Russia 
the Russian past, these short films seem to offer a chance to see a little of Russia as it is today. I agree. This year, a short's program consists of eight films, and they show modern life rather than past. We find that short programs is very popular uh, with the audience because you get to see not just one film, but a few. You get to experience and and see different films of different directors at um, various time in their careers. Younger directors, you have female directors in in shorts where the three feature films are very much um, male-dominated, early early mid-30 directors, film school graduates. This is is more varied within the short films. Mm -hmm. The younger ones, uh, graduates, um, as well as somebody more experienced. And you will see uh, faces that you don't recognize from the blockbusters. So I think it would be a good taste of Russian cinema. Over the last few years of the festival, it's taken place in various places around Cambridge, sometimes at the Arts Picture House, sometimes within the, within one or two of the universities. Where are you basing your, your screenings this year, your four nights of screenings? Mm-hmm. Four nights, we have three venues. So we have on Monday, we will be in Trinity Hall. On Wednesday, we will be in King's College. And then Friday and Saturday, both days, we will be in Judge Business School, which is across from the Fitzwilliam Museum. Um, all the details and addresses will be on our website, www.camrus.com, and you will find information there. And ticket prices? Uh, ticket prices, full price is £10 per screening, or you can get a discounted if you buy to all four days. You can pay just £32. And for members of our society, as well as some um, concession tickets, students and people over 60, they have a, we have a price of £6. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Thanks, Toby, for that. And many thanks to Yelena Carl for the interview. As they just mentioned, you can find out more about the Russian Film Week by visiting their website. It's www.camrus.com. So that's C-A-M-R-U-S-S.com. Click on forthcoming events and you'll be able to check out when and where everything's showing. So welcome back to Bums on Seats. You've missed Le Mans, you've missed the Aeronauts. We're going to try and squeeze in three more films if possible. We've got Burning Cane on Netflix and The Good Liar to come, but Christmas is here now. You have thrown away your life working in some silly Christmas shop. Baby, don't cry. This is my little helper. I have nicknamed her Lazy the Elf because she appears never to work. Father, Daddy, Christmas, get me out of here. Whoa! You! Again. What do you mean again? Did you follow me here? Are elves always so cynical? Yes. Relentlessly, these are dark times. I'm Tom. Kate? I've been trying to find you, but you keep disappearing. And then when I do bump into you, accidentally, I might add. It wasn't accidental. Why me? It's always going to be you. You like? <laughs> You're going to make mistakes, and that's okay. You're made of everything you do. You can't be here! No, we're leaving! So, we have last Christmas. I don't need to tell you my 
reticence about this. You go, Emma. Tell us what it's about. You liked it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm the, um, so it is written by Emma, well, the story was being created by Emma Thompson and her husband, Greg Wise, famously, and it is based Sorry. on the song Last Christmas. It is as simple as that. Which is the finest song the wow, to Last ever Christmas song. So recorded. you have Amelia Clark, who is playing Kate, who is this chaotic mm. mess of a bit of a manic pixie dream girl, if you want to call her that. Mm. She's Careering around London. Manic elf dream girl, I think. There you go. Careering around London, working (laughs) bizarrely in an all-round Christmas shop in the middle of Covent Garden as an elf, and she never seems to take her elf costume off either, so she's always in this cutesy elf costume when she's not working. Anyway, her life is a mess. She's sleeping around. She doesn't... She's... she's, um, She's Yugoslavian from a previous, previous Yugoslavian, I believe, Croatian by birth, but she's come to the UK. She doesn't get on well with her parents. She's trying to avoid them as well, so she's just crashing on people's couches, making a mess of her life, and then in a terrible meeting where a bird poos on her, she meets the handsome dish played by Henry Golding of Crazy Rich Asians, and he is this mysterious stranger who is there to help her get her life back on track. Okay, first question. How do we pronounce the surname of the director? I'm going to go with Feig. For Feig. And Paul I'm Feig s- off of Bridesmaids. Yeah, okay. and I'm going to say that I went into this expecting to hate it. I do want to make that really clear. You did. Clear. You I, said on Thursday live. I, I do not like... I, did, I don't like... I mean, I love Game of Thrones, but I'm no Amelia Clark like fan. I didn't I enjoy Me Before You. I don't really like that whole kind of overly... Like me, like me, love me, love me. My face is moving way too much. However... <laughs> And also, I wasn't a massive fan of Crazy Rich Asians either. But however, having said that, by about 20 minutes, I found myself oddly moved by the whole affair. And in fact, I spent most of the second half in floods of tears. You did a massive cry. I want to say very clearly, you know, obviously this is being pitched a little bit as like a Love Actually style new Christmas classic rom-com. Mm. Very little com for me. It's all. It was lots of rom, very little com. I didn't laugh much. But it is wrapped up. It felt a bit like a pre-seasonal hug all wrapped up in an hour and 40 minutes with some really fine supporting work from um, particularly from Michelle Yeoh I know Simon is going to talk more about that because he was a massive fan of that and Amelia <laughs> Clark didn't annoy me as much as I thought she would do and although there is a very sort of heavy handed anti-Brexit message maybe that's what I found so emotionally <laughs> emotionally traumatic in these <laughs> difficult times um, it is by no means a, a great film it's probably not even a good film but I don't Ooh, know it touched they've a, let my George down it, they I'm touched a chord with me but I was also going to say of course it's very hard when you have such an amazing back catalogue of music and I know that we can talk about Rocket Man you can talk about Bohemian Rhapsody you can talk about the fact that all these films are coming out and sort of relying on the nostalgia we have for this mm-hmm. music but you know my goodness he wrote some beautiful songs and it's hard not to feel touched when you're watching this and hearing that music is it hard even though they're quite they're delivered quite on the nose in a lot of places mark you said the the way they put things like wake me up before you go go and it's like oh come on there, there's a lot of this film which is heavy-handed to be fair uh they're not only some of the music choices and and actually in terms of the music choices there's no necessarily bad thing about that because most of these jukebox musicals they have no choice but to put the tune exactly where you'd expect it and that's probably why they've written the story in the way they have so i'm not going to be overly critical of that <laughs> Um, what I am going to be overly critical of um, is some of the other heavy-handedness, particularly 
the film tries to have its cake and eat it. There's a, she ends up volunteering at this homeless shelter where, where uh, Tom has been volunteering as well, Henry Golding. Mm-hmm. And, and somebody there who's, who's also helping is in a wheelchair. He's very judgmental about these middle-class people that come in and just think they're helping and whatever else. And then she puts on a talent show and there's a procession of the homeless people that are auditioning for this talent show and they're all grubby weirdos. And the film is absolutely judging these people mm-hmm. when it's saying that you shouldn't judge these people. And it's it's... Yeah, I, I, the only way I can really describe it succinctly is to say that this is an absolute Richard Curtis film, and I mean that as a compliment and as a heavy criticism. Mm. It's, but it's nowhere near as well. And this comes from someone who doesn't even love Richard Curtis that much, apart from Four Weddings and a Funeral. It's yeah, nowhere he at four nearly as it's nowhere near as well written as a Richard Curtis film. It, there yeah. are about a tenth of the amount of jokes in it. I, imagine, imagine Richard Curtis wrote a drama. I think and we're getting a bit close to the mark. <laughs> Okay. What was wrong with Michelle, Simon? What did she do to you? There was nothing wrong with Michelle. <laughs> he loved her. He loved Michelle her. was the heart of the film. Michelle Yeoh as Santa was absolutely fantastic. So what do you mean Santa? Was, is she the shop owner? She's a shop owner. Right. Um, her The scenes in the shop is Amelia Clark and Michelle Yeoh. They were the funny parts of the film. I did actually laugh quite a lot whenever she was on screen. Okay. Um, th- it was a nice compliment to all the more serious drama which is so badly written um that the patty film tried Lepone's to get through in it, though well she's hmm? never patty lapone's in it she's never done a bad thing in her life surely uh, uh, you don't uh, recognize which character she's blink, 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 what i believe she's because one of the things we didn't say is kate is also a failing actress or so she's going to all these auditions oh, the whole time yeah. and i believe patty lapone maybe on one of the audition that yeah was the i, I the saw peter Finovitz and a few other people yes. in the credits they've got one Sue scene Perkins. yeah uh, Sue Rob, Perkins, Rob all from catastrophe as well they have one scene and that's it um, so most of the big all-star cast is an all-star cast. Um, I did notice one thing about the music, to be honest. If I didn't know Ram and uh, Paul George Michael, I wouldn't have known who they were from this film. It's not heavy-handed. They don't make okay. a thing about it being George Michael. They don't make it thing, apart from the fact you know it's a song last Christmas. The film has got no relationship at all to the story with Ram or George Michael, which was a bit of a surprise. Um, but despite how bad this film can be with the story. I mean, you can picture Emma Thompson and Gregor Eyes having a drink, listening to the song, think, I know, let's write a song We're rich about and this. famous, we can do whatever we want. And, and not <laughs> getting a how awful an idea it is. You cannot hate Amelia Clark or Henry Goldman. They are just Golding. one... Golding. I, I mean, they are... Both. They are just so lovely. Her no, eyebrows are amazing. Mommy. I can just watch I, it. I was surprised... I actually kind of enjoyed this film. I wanted. I was not expecting it. So, despite you saying how bad it was, <laughs> I enjoyed it. I so did want to say good. that I felt that Henry Golding was really underwritten because I do think oh. he's got great screens and he's got great screen presence. He's obviously, you know, he's not just a very handsome man. He also has he has a magnetism and he has a presence. But really, all he had to do in this film was just kind of look soulful, slightly disapproving when Kate is behaving badly, when he's trying to get her to realise the error of her ways. And, and like I said, just soulful. And I thought you could have, they really could have done more with him. I, without getting into the actual culmination of the film, I, which I think informs a lot of why Henry, Goldman's, Henry Golding's character is, is like that, uh, I would say that the thing that makes this film worth watching is the, the, the easy chemistry between Amelia Clark and, and Henry Golding. I was going to disagree. I was going to say I didn't no. think they had enough chemistry. I, I had a real no, problem I, with that. I, I, I enjoyed the scenes together. I, I think she does a lot of the heavy lifting of the film. I actually enjoyed her in Me Before You. I, did, I, did, I don't think she was that great in Game of Thrones. I think she was quite often stilted. But I I'm actually, a Game of Thrones fan. I'm not necessarily a fan of Amelia Clark. Either, yeah. But she was, I, you know... 
I have enjoyed her in things which are not Game of Thrones much more than I enjoyed her in Game of Thrones, I have to say. Even though her eyebrows look like two snakes at a disco. She uh, looks like that true. emoji eyebrow. I mean, she was, a, but, I, but I liked her more than I thought. I, I, like I say, I went in really expecting to just walk back out again and I found myself strangely charmed. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a weird one. I think it's going to divide people and not necessarily divide the three of us. It's going to, each person will feel conflicted about the bits they like and the bits they don't. It, it really will split everyone Yeah, because I was going to say it was middle. a well-meaning film and then you made that point and I hadn't really even picked up on that. You made that point about the fact yeah. it was trying to have its cake and eat it and I was like, oh, maybe it's not as well meaning as I thought and now I'm feeling They tricked bad. you with the fairy lights <laughs> and the wham and I, I would be tricked by the same but... But the, oh, also, oh. I, I would like to say really quickly, sorry, I found the parent-child relationship quite touching as well actually, even though Emma Thompson is is bizarrely cast herself as the um, Croatian mother with a very thick accent. I can always, you know, Emma Thompson is always extremely watchable. I, I think we, we just need to say as a side to that, it does feel like Emma Thompson has stepped out of the Croatian version of Alo Alo. She is putting the accent on oh, so thick. It sounded more Russian than Croatian to me. Well, uh, only because I went to holiday in Croatia a few months ago uh, and, and I was trying to place which bit of Croatia she might possibly have come this from. This is like a week of accents, isn't it? It's like, yeah. um, it's like Christian Bale's Birmingham slash Yorkshire. Now. I, I missed the first five minutes, I must have and I thought she was Russian. I thought they were Russian immigrants until they suddenly mentioned, oh, back in Yugoslavia. It's like, I thought you were saying you were Russian. Um, It's really that poor. But I quite like, but like I said, I found, because there is is a dynamic between her and her sister and there's a small subplot there as well. And I I found that the the sadness that maybe comes when your children have grown up and don't really necessarily want to be with you, I found that quite poignant. I, I, I think the one thing I'll say as well is that the film never quite takes enough risks for me. You know, the, 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 the bog-standard Christmas story things get held up against is A Christmas Carol, where, where the stakes of a man's soul are at play here. And actually, that's where this film could have gone. We're talking about a, a massive redemptive arc for Amelia Clark's character. And I never felt like she was either that bad to begin with or actually redeemed herself that much in the process. It's very hard to take Amelia Clark seriously as like a feedback type character. Yeah, you, you like there's a kind of Groundhog Day sense about it in that she's got to learn to live her life better or you know, you've got to be a better person. But like you say, Mila Clark herself is just so cute and so sweet and so expressive. You can't really take her seriously as a hard-drinking, hard-living, you know, given sex addict, which I think she's really meant to be at the beginning. And also weirdly clumsy and screwing up other people's lives. It goes into a weird bit of slapstick comedy at odd points, which doesn't work either. We, so, were, yeah, we were playing this. Will Ashley guess the twist because I famously never guess twists. But there is, is that redemptive in terms of entertainment? Does that hook you back in or is it still a bit I'm, meh? I knew the twist. I'm going to say if you really want to go and see this and you don't want to have any idea about the twist, then don't watch the trailer because I think the trailer, the, the, the twist to me was fairly obvious from the trailer. So when I went in, I still didn't I had get it. Or did I guess it before, while we were listening to the know. trailer? No, actually, I don't know. No. Oh, I'm not going to talk okay. about it anyway. Are we worried then because it's had hit and miss reviews? We've kind of said, go see it, but has it been released too early then? If they held this until the week before Christmas, it might have made a bit I more of an impact. I don't think so. I no? think people are going to forget this after a week after they see it. Oh. It's not going to be one that come back again and again And it's not Christmasy. It's no. not that Christmasy, apart from the fact it's got last Christmas in the title and, covered and in a lot lights. of it's set in a Christmas shop. Yeah, but it's a year-round um, Christmas shop. But it's a year-round Christmas <laughs> so, shop. And it's... Which I think is against my own religion. But what do you think, Mark? Yeah, I, I completely agree. You get, we were talking earlier on about covered in fairy lights. Amelia Clark finishes the film, literally <laughs> covered head to toe in fairy lights in fairy the elf lights. costume. Not you know, safe. It's, don't it, try that. At it home. goes all in, but but you know, 
because it's got a George Michael soundtrack and not a Christmas soundtrack, it doesn't feel Christmassy until the last scene. Do they so, even put bells over any of it? The nice bell sound. No. I like. Well, it's oh. not even really. It's only <laughs> the very last scene that is Christmas. It's not even necessarily. It's, it's kind of. I think it's sort of set in some. It's maybe set in October, November at the beginning. I don't know. It's not. Mm. Oh, they shot it during the summer. I remember listening to her in another interview, and they they shot it overnight to make it dark enough. So they're they're telling you it's four p.m., but it's actually three a.m. in July or something like that. Uh, I, I would say Die Hard is a thousand times more Christmassy than this one. And that's not a Christmas film, and you have to stop that. Don't. Well, that's the whole point. <laughs> that a film no. which is not a Christmas film is a thousand <laughs> times more Christmassy than this is. It's not going to be. It's not going to become Love Actually. If that's what they're hoping for, it's I not going to be. Really like no, I'm not saying actually. I like it either. But I know a lot of people do, and I know a lot of people see that as their festive film choice. I don't think it's going to be one you're going to go back to Christmas after Christmas. But there are worse ways to spend uh, an hour and forty minutes. Okay, I'm going to give Last Christmas a go because I live and breathe Christmas, and it lives in my heart all year round. Um, it's only on at the light and the view in town, though, but it's on at all your surrounding cineworlds as well if you'd like a little early Christmas cheer. Bums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Didn't sound like they liked that much, but they really did not like this next one. There's a Netflix release called Burning Cane. Just listen for the lols with this review. Thy kingdom come, thy yes. will be done. Oh, yes. On earth. Yes. As it is yes. in heaven. Yes. He who dies with the most toys wins. You can go out there and try to get a pretty dress, but it don't mean nothing if you're going to lose your soul. These young people don't believe a goddamn word I'm preaching up there on that stage, and I know it. No toys get you into heaven. It's the friendships that you have. It's the kindness that you do. Did you clothe me when I was naked? Did you give me housing when I had no place to live? Did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you drink, give me water to drink? When I was thirsty. You don't think I can hold my liquor? Back up now. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Amen? Amen. 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 Thank you, church. Right. This looked good from the front cover on Netflix. And I'm one... I click add to my list when I just like the front cover. So I'm probably easily marketed to. What's this about, Simon, firstly? Um, well... I watched it, and I'm still not 100% sure I can actually tell you exactly what it is about. <laughs> um, it's the most impressive thing about this, and I think the reason why it's getting a bit of a push and it's been getting a lot of praise and all that is that the director's 17. And Philip Humans, writer. Philip Humans, he wrote it and directed it. He's 17. He, he stars Wendell Pierce, um, who's again a fine actor. It's. It starts off quite nice with a nice monologue about uh, rural Louisiana and about a dog and what's happening with a, with a dog who's got mange and how they constantly treat it. And that was really quite fascinating. Oh. Um, but then it kind of becomes more of a student film. Um, there's lots of scenes about talking about religion and about violence and I think about how slavery was bad. And Student films and are good in their own way, but maybe not And it's not really feature length uh, okay. like I said at that point I'm sure that some people could enjoy it but 
Well, one of the reasons we kind of picked it was that, you know, it's only an hour 17. We keep saying we like short films. Mm. Um, unfortunately, this one's about an hour too long. Oh, um, okay. It felt every minute. Every minute. You took it in two sittings, didn't you, I Emma? Because did. it was... It was is I it did. really that dull? Well, it's... So, effectively, you've got Karen Kaya Levers, who's playing this mother, and she's got one surviving grown-up son who's come back to her house, and he's, you know, he's, he's violent and he's alcoholic, and she also has the... Wendell Pierce plays their local pastor, so he gets some sort of good preaching scenes that that don't necessarily really fit in with anything else. It's shot in a very difficult way to watch. Really, the framing I think is deliberately awkward. They shoot a lot from from below, and so you're looking at the backs of people's heads while they're talking. It's hard to work out who's talking to who. It was hard to really keep a track on who was who. To be honest, there's in turn there's monologues from from different characters. I I. I I really don't. I, I don't know what to say. I thought I was gonna. I thought this looks like it's gonna be right up my strata. I was like, I love a bit of rural Louisiana. I love a bit of you yeah, know, that deep south kind of those shoot potential full. And uh, I just did not get it. I just felt like it was having my teeth pulled out for an hour oh. and fifteen minutes. I didn't get it. But it's had excellent people of you know reviews. Particularly reviews that have come out of the states. From so who? Well, RogerEbert.com's given it five stars. What? hundred percent. Ava Duvernay's really been praising it. Um, a lot of it's the stuff a kind that of they've film. been nominated for, though, they're nominating yeah. the writer director. So I think they're trying to praise this mean feat from such a young person. Like I said, for being so young. It's amazing. It seems to be more of a work of a 60-year-old rather than a 17-year-old. Um, okay. I think he really could go places. It's the kind of film where you want to sit down afterwards and you can have a full class and use it as a starting point for discussion about civics and okay. other things. But as a piece of entertainment to sit down and watch at home... Fail. It's, it's like watching, you know... The, really boring documentary yeah I'm, not, <laughs> yeah I'm not even I don't know if it felt like it wasn't really made for entertainment it's interesting to me and this is quite an interesting thing that I guess it's found a home on Netflix and th this means that obviously we do get you know there is some interesting content there that maybe in ye olden days before streaming you wouldn't have found a home for it and now you can you know there are, there is a home for something like this which is a just a distinctly odd film cool well Burning Cane odd and boring <laughs> don't see it well, good job it's not on in the cinema because you don't go and pay money for it. If you've got Netflix, would you even bother to give it a quick yeah. look? If you like sort of treaties on religion set in rural Louisiana in okay. some unspecified time frame. Well, we've got, we've got three seconds to talk about our next film, so I will move you quickly on. This is The Good Liar. So tell me, have you done this a lot? Met people on the computer service? Don't you find it's always the same? You mean the anticipation followed by the letdown? But I tell myself, brace up. This time it will be different. Which is why I must now confess to you a deception in my part. My name is in fact not Brian, it's Roy. To the future. How much do you think she's worth? Nearly three million pounds. You're going to take the lot? You bloody bet I'm going to take it all. Is that your grandson? It's too soon to be getting so close to him. I know things about you, who you really are. You don't want to do this, Roy. Ian McKellen, Sir Ian McKellen, Dame Helen Mirren in The Good Liar. Mark, what are they doing? 
they are uh, internet dating. Uh, they scandal. Uh, the the silver generation is is at it as well. I mean, I, I, I can't recommend it enough. It worked for me in my life, but uh, you don't want to hear about that. You want to hear about the good liar. Uh, because, enough about you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you think of me? Uh, as Bette Midler once famously said. Anyway, uh, so this this is uh, this is Ray Courtney uh, played by Ian McKellen, and uh, he meets uh, Helen Mirren's character online, Betty McLeish, and uh, they gradually form a relationship and a bond, uh, much the disapproval of uh, the, uh, her grandson, uh, Sir Russell Toby, uh, who's, who's always amazing in things. And uh, it's clear from the beginning that he's got some shady other dealings going on, uh, because he's also conning other people out of money, which we see in, in early scenes. And uh, he then discovers that she is minted, and then tries to relieve her of her hard-earned cash as well. Uh, and the film... As you do. Is 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 really focusing on it, on these two characters, uh, and it's it's trying to wrong foot you, and it doesn't do that. It, it's weirdly violent in places in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, and it's got a big twist about two thirds of the way in, where you learn more about about one of the characters, and then another twist at the end where you learn more about the other. Um, the the first twist made me go, no. And the second twist made me want to throw things at the screen. It's so dumb. And the way in which it's handled is so offensive. I have no time for this film. Fine. I thought um, that the trailer gave it all away and I thought there'd be no point going to see this because Ian McKellen in one of the trailers says right at the beginning, I'm going to fleece her for all she's worth. But that's not the case as we've just heard. But were, were the... The twists enough to keep you interested? You're right about not going to see this. Um, <laughs> the tra- the the twist in the trailer, it the storyline where he's conning her is clear in the first five minutes. The fact that she, well, if I'm going to actually spoil it, knows it's all a con is obvious after about ten minutes because you've seen these okay. films many, many times before. And then the twist again with the justification just makes you think, why did I waste my hour and a half of my life watching this um it is really quite appalling as as mark says and quite offensive um i can see how it may work as a novel when just to throw away book to read on the beach and can see why it's popular but chiclet um Mirror and McKellen are always watchable, as is Russell Tovey, which is probably the plus points in the film. So maybe they've been conned um, into taking this so job because director Bill Condon did it, because yeah. he's off of Dreamgirls and Chicago fame. So You can see kind of why he did it and why they released it and what the marketing is for, right. but the actual result, um, I can see why a lot of people don't like it. Great people can do bad things, if that's anything to take away from The Good Liar, so it's a definite no from both of you. Yeah, that, that works well in terms of both the story and the film itself. So. <laughs> well, that was a super jam-packed show, everyone. Thanks very much. And thanks to all of you for listening to Bums on Seats. If you're listening to us live on Saturday, stay tuned because Women Making Waves is coming up. If you're listening to our repeat on Sunday, stay tuned for Classical Cambridge. If you're listening to our podcast, ignore all of the above um, and go back to whatever it was you were doing. Um, we had Ford v Ferrari slash Le Mans. We had Last Christmas, The Aeronauts, The Good Liar, uh-uh, Burning Cane, uh-uh. and go and check out the Russian Film Festival if you're round and about Cambridge. 